Amen. All right, let us turn our Bibles and devices back to 1 John. We had a beautiful opening of this text, this chapter, as it kind of spills over from chapter 2 to chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, we'll go through today. So as I stated, we had a beautiful introduction into 1 John from Pastor Castillo on last week. As we see, once again, the nature of the grace of God, the Trinitarian understanding of God and his people. And John will continue on in the strong language of absolutism from the word of God because the word of God is absolute. This portion of text is very verb heavy, as we'll see in the coming messages, if the Lord says the same. Verses 4 through basically 12 are just a hard-hitting area of absolute language. We hope to do our best to exegete and expound upon these great truths of scripture. So we'll only read three verses today. It will only come from three verses. First John chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. It reads, Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifest to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abides in him sins not. Whosoever sins has not seen him, neither known him. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much once again for grace. Allow our hearts to be oriented on the fact that we have been pardoned. Allow our eyes to see your holy verses being expounded and written down from the apostle. For our good, we see that we are convicted of any sin that we commit against you. We know that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins because you loved us before the foundation of the world and you are gracious. Allow our hearts to be ready to, to uh, receive, our ears to hear, and let our mouths profess after we hear these things and receive these things to those who are lost, to those who don't have a covering for their sin, even to those who practice sin. In the name of Jesus do we pray, amen. All right. Well, that's some pretty hard-hitting language. Um, I told my wife I had to cut this down from basically about 8,500 words. Um, this is a task, so I cut it in half. So this will be the first message of about three because there is so much theological um, richness here in these verses and the upcoming ones that you'll see in scripture. Um, I hope to, that this won't sound like a lecture. I tried to make it as much as a sermon as I could, but there's so much here to deal with. So um, I will read from two other texts just to kind of orient our minds around what John is saying. So I'll read from the ESV, and I know some of you all use the NASB, just to kind of give us a, a, a more realistic picture of what he's saying. 
So 1 John 3, 4 through 6 in the ESV reads like this. It reads, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. In the NASB, it reads like this. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who remains in him sins continually. No one who sins continually has seen him or knows him. When we discuss sin today, we often try to soften the blow of the unholiness and heinousness it carries with it. We say things like, everybody makes mistakes. Because by saying it's a mistake, we almost try to absolve the person of their culpability of sin. If it was a mistake, it's not their fault. If it was a mistake, it was a level of ignorance that caused me to do so. If it was a mistake, you can't hold me accountable because it was almost not of my own doing or intentional. We say brokenness. Instead of sinfulness or lawlessness or iniquity, because by saying that a person is broken, it almost implies that the reason why they are who they are or they did what they did is due to some outside person or force. When something breaks, think about it, uh, it is typically broken because of an outside force caused the damage. When you think of a glass cup, it breaks. It doesn't break on its own. Maybe the glass is pushed off the table and it shatters on impact. Well, since the glass didn't push itself or cause the harm which caused it to be broken, we try to look at people the same way. It's our environment that makes us sin. It's our parents that make us sin. It's our society, it's our government, it's our families, it's our spouses. It's everyone but us. It's an outside force that causes us to sin. We do these things because no matter how much trauma we have suffered, no matter how many excuses we can make, no matter how many, how many attempts to change our vocabulary about sin, we know that we are sinners. And we know that with sin, we are not worthy of grace, but we are worthy of judgment. Even when we tell the truth, we attempt to absolve ourselves of sin. How many times have we evangelized and heard somebody say, well, nobody's perfect, or only God can judge me? Both are true statements. No human person is perfect, and it is only God who can judge us. None of us have a heaven or hell to put anyone else in, but we know the one who does. So, as sinners, those two statements should terrify us. We should fear and tremble at the fact that if we meet God, who is perfect in holiness, righteousness, and perfect in his judgment, we should fear that when we meet him in our imperfect condition, if we tell God nobody's perfect, on that day, his response will be, I am. 
It is true that only God can judge us, but newsflash, we've already been judged. The Bible says we are already condemned. The truth of God judging us as our sins do actually deserve should keep us up at night, it should drive us to our knees, and it should unleash our mouths to repentance. But because of the callousness which sin causes on the heart, as John puts it in the previous verses, we are blind to it before Christ. This is why we must be regenerated. We must be made new. A lot of people will say, I was born this way. But that's exactly why we must be born again. Only Christ can do this. Only the gospel of Christ can save us from sin. For it is the power unto what? Salvation. Mark my words carefully. Christ is the only reason why we do not sin. Now you might say, wait a minute, Pastor. We just went through 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, and John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And you, dear beloved Christian, would be correct. The key to that verse, though, is we. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in who? Us. The fact still remains, though, that Christ is the only reason why we do not sin. And from that, we will use for a subject of our lesson today, those in Christ commit no sin. Those in Christ commit no sin. And I want you to remember the epistle in this letter here didn't just begin with, John, with 1 John 3, 4. We have to read these three verses and the following verses with all of the rich, encouraging context that John has labored to lay out for us before. Because today we will see that he leans heavily on yet another contrast. And that is the contrast of sin and righteousness. He uses absolute language once again to make a clear distinction between those who are in Christ and know they are, and those we know who are not in Christ. And the dividing line today is sin. In a Ligonier Q&A panel discussion, a question was asked to the late R.C. Sproul, and the question went like this. Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting, end quote. R.C. Sproul's answer, quote, that God's punishment for Adam was so severe? This creature from the dirt defiled the everlasting holy God. After that, God said, the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying, Thanatos, that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of the curse applied for quite some time. But the worst curse came upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. 
I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are, end quote. If I could be so bold to continue a follow-up statement, I would also say we don't know how severe our sin against that holy God is either. And I believe this is the purpose of why John once again uses this direct language in our text. He wants us to make a contrast that God makes. He wants us to see sin as exceedingly sinful as God does. He wants us to see sin as separation from Jesus Christ. Because it is. So let's go back to verse 4. Verse 4 of 1 John 3. It reads, Whosoever commits sin transgresses the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. I personally like all the translations that I read earlier here because the original language is verb heavy and presents an ongoing nature of sin. That is to say, this type of sin that separates you from Christ, those who do not abide in Christ, have a lifestyle of sin. It is ongoing. It is a practice, as the ESV says. It is an intentional, habitual attitude and execution of sin. It could read like this. Everyone who commits themselves to a life and practice of sin is practicing lawlessness, a habitual transgression of God's law is what we do. To sin is to be lawless. Sin is iniquity and without God's law. This sin, this type of sinning, is knowledge of God's law, but either through indifference or apathy, one continues to live in that sin without repentance, without remorse. The absolute best analogy I could provide is when we see a semblance of this played out in human courts of law. A criminal will stand before a judge guilty, and sometimes the judge who is presiding will ask, do you have any remorse for what you have done? Some criminals are remorseful. Some criminals turn to the jury or the family who they committed the, the crime against, and they apologize. Some plead and some weep, some beg. Whether the criminal is sincere or is just acting, sometimes the judge will grant mercy. The judge might shorten the sentence or provide provisions of release with good behavior. But some criminals are without natural affection, as the Bible says, not remorseful. In some cases, happy or even proud of their criminal activity. Some criminals look at the jury, the family, or the judge and declare they would do it again if they had the chance. If they had it to do it all over again, if they could change things, they would not. They would rob again, they would steal again, they would murder again, and no matter if they are in jail or out free, they would look at the judge in the eye and say, yes, I will do it again. 
regardless of how much I know about how bad my sin is, regardless of how much I know it's hurting myself and other people, regardless of the judge staring me in the face who has the power to grant mercy, I don't care, I will continue to break the law. I will continue to be lawless. I will continue to sin. This is the mindset. That is the attitude that is the commitment and practice of sin that John is referring to. A lifestyle of sin that where we are enslaved to if we're not in Christ. We are enslaved by the influences of Satan, by the system of the world, and we are enslaved by our own flesh. But through the saving grace of God and his gospel, Christ transforms us into what? His likeness. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 5. 1 John, verse 5. 1 John 3, verse 5. It reads, And you know that he was manifested, there it is, to what? To take away sins, and in him is no sin. Christ came in order to take away our sins. John wants us to understand, to fully comprehend what was done through Jesus Christ. After being so direct when speaking about sin and describing those who make their lifestyles a practice of sin, he follows up with an ultimate contrast of righteousness, of holiness that we bear witness to, namely Jesus Christ. In Christ, there is no sin. In Christ, there is no more judgment of sin. In Christ, there is no more shame of sin. And in Christ, we are no longer enslaved to sin. We are slaves to Christ. We have a new master. And under this new master's rule, we are made what? Free from sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? A new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. You also remember in the same epistle, 1 John 2, 17, and the world is what? passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. 1 Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the ministry of godliness, God who was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed in the world, received up to glory. The process of us having no sin is all in Christ. You see, God used to look upon us, those who are saved, with wrath. Seeing our previous federal head, our previous headship in the flesh, Adam, the man that plunged all of us, mankind, and the world into sin. But now... In Christ, 
the new Adam, God, the Father, looks upon us as he looks upon his only begotten son. He looks upon us with the love he has for his only begotten son, Christ manifested in the flesh to cover our corrupted flesh through a perfect sacrifice. In that manifestation, he offered up his perfect works also and a perfect sacrifice in the flesh to save flesh and not just to save our flesh during this period that we live on earth, but he has also ransomed us and transformed us. And in the fullness of time, we will be changed into a new flesh, leaving the old flesh of Adam behind and being fully glorified in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, abiding in him. At the end of the verse, John once again reinforces the idea. Jesus Christ is perfect. In him is no sin. He is the sinless, spotless lamb, the only sacrifice having no sin. Who could take away all sin? And so, those who abide in him have not only their sins forgiven, but they have their sins blotted out, removed, cured from the curse. Because in order to live with him, in order to abide in him, we must be made perfect. That sounds heavy, doesn't it? Made perfect. It, that, that word perfection, holiness, is so foreign to our fleshly thinking. But it is not what we think. We are in these bodies and we are imperfect, but we are made perfect by the declaration, by the accomplishment of the word of God, we are made perfect. When God sees his son, he sees us as his son because we have been covered by the blood. And this next part will sort of summarize the last two verses. It will be lengthy, but it will be fruitful. Skip over to, go one down to verse 6. 1 John 3, 6. What does it read? Whosoever abides in him sins not. Whosoever sins has not seen him, neither known him. Wow. Now we have seen John address heretical views about Jesus coming in the flesh and those who denied that, those who follow Antichrist and those who are manifested as many Antichrists and also historically with the Gnostics that believe they could obtain some extra knowledge and become holier or more righteous in the pursuit of being like Christ. But there is a more recent heresy. I don't normally do this in sermons, but I want to address this heretical view because it is used to not only discourage Christians, which that's John's opposite view. John is encouraging Christians, but this heresy discourages Christians. It has gone by different names, but has the same philosophy. It is an offshoot of legalism. It is a misunderstanding of the believer's life in sanctification and the believer's relationship with sin. It is the idea of Christian perfectionism, or some groups call it 
entire sanctification. It is the belief that we can literally obtain a sinless perfection in this life, in these bodies, before the glorified state of eternity. And they believe we can do this all through experience and free will. It is the belief, this belief is heretical. And I want you to understand, I don't just use that word flippantly. I don't just throw around heresy. I don't use it lightly. This belief denies the word of God, I'll show you. This belief denies the works of Jesus Christ. And this belief denies the work of the Holy Spirit, which is the seal, the believer, in regeneration. The Holy Spirit's work is to remind and convict the believer in sanctification. And finally, the work of the Holy Spirit is to what? Glorify the believer in the end. The very ministry of God in sanctification and glorification is denied by those who espouse this doctrine. The very books of the Bible, verses, they use to prop up their claims to support this belief, including 1 John 3, 6 and several other places, some in the same books and letters, all of the word of God condemns them. Have you ever heard of the Church of the Nazarene? The Church of the Nazarene in their Articles of Faith, Section 10, listen to this. Church of the Nazarene Articles of Faith, Section 10, it reads, quote, We believe that sanctification is the work of God which transforms believers into the likeness of Christ. Wow, I believe that, right? We believe that, right? But it is wrought by God's grace through the Holy Spirit in initial sanctification or regeneration simultaneous with justification, entire sanctification, which is their version of Christian perfectionism, and the continued perfecting work of the Holy Spirit, culminating in glorification. In glorification, we are fully conformed to the image of the Son. We believe that the entire sanctification is an act of God subsequent to regeneration, but which believers are made free from original sin or depravity and brought into a state of entire devotement to God and the holy obedience of love made perfect. Did you catch the middle part? They smash together sanctification and justification and glorification. That's heresy. We are not perfect on this side of heaven. They believe that it is possible to overcome the depraved state of man, the wickedness of man's heart in total and become perfect through sheer experience of obedience of what they call entire sanctification. I've told you once before this, that if you have to put a qualifier at the beginning or end of scripture, it's probably not scripture, like the prosperity gospel. It's just the gospel, like sanctification. It's not entire sanctification, initial sanctification. It's sanctification. They go on to say, Article 10.1, they say, it is wrought by the baptism with our infilling of the Holy Spirit and comprehends in one experience the cleansing of the heart from sin and the abiding, indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, empowering the believer for life and service, entire sanctification is provided by the blood of Jesus. It is wrought instantaneously by grace through faith 
preceded by the entire consecration and to its work and state of grace, the Holy Spirit bears witness. This experience is also known by various terms representing its different phases, such as Christian perfection. This is, the, 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 this is their words. Perfect love, heart unity, the baptism or the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the blessing, and Christian holiness. We believe that there is a marked distinction between a pure heart and a mature character. The former is obtained in an instant, and the result of the entire sanctification is latter in the result of growth and grace. They believe that you can grow into your perfection. I'll read this last part. We believe that the grace of entire sanctification includes divine impulse to grow in grace as a Christ-like disciple. However, this impulse may be consciously nurtured and careful attention given to the requisites and process of spiritual development and improvement in Christ's likeness of character and personality. Without such purposeful endeavor, one's witness may be impaired and the grace itself frustrated and ultimately lost. So if you don't make yourself perfect, you can lose the grace of God. not just in our modern time. Martin Luther dealt with this from theologians in his day, from what he called medieval scholastics, who garnered a vain philosophy from Aristotle. In his commentary in Romans, he says this about those who believe in sinless perfectionism. Quote Martin Luther, he says, they teach that sin is entirely destroyed by baptism or repentance. And so regarded as absurd that the apostle here, he means Paul, reading Romans, where Paul says, sin dwelleth in me. As a converted or spiritual man, they say he could no longer have any sin in him. Therefore, they argue he here speaks of himself as a carnal or unconverted man, end quote. I want you to understand this. Those that believe in sinless perfectionism or entire sanctification believe that the Apostle Paul was unregenerate and a carnal, unconverted man. Christians do not obtain sinless perfection by means of works, experience, or even through sacraments. The table is what we do to remember God. The washing of the water, the cleansing, the dunking inside of submerging in water is what we do to share in the profession of God, but it does not make us sinless. I was baptized the same day as my wife. She can attest it does not make us sinless. But this is heresy. To believe this is to be just like the Gnostics and deny Christ. Now, I want to make this clear. This is not to deny our partnership with God in our sanctification and that we should not work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it is to say we would not be sanctified, separated, called out, set apart if, we, if it were not for the Holy Spirit and the works of his ministry. If Christians could not sin at all, 
and we're perfect, then why would God need to chastise us? Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, Revelation 3, 19. If Christians cannot sin at all, then why does the Apostle Paul give us multiple warnings throughout Scripture to flee fornication, sexual immorality, and to even shun the very appearance of evil? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, 1 Thessalonians 5, 22. Also, Scripture tells us not to what? Quench the Spirit, not to grieve the Holy Spirit. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit if you're perfect and sinless? Ephesians 4.30, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. When you argue with a sinless perfectionist, they would say, we don't have to sin, which any Christian would agree with that statement. But not sinning at all is akin to denying that Christ came in the flesh like many of the Gnostics. Or it is in direct contradiction with Scripture. In the case of 1 John, the same epistle, when John says that those who are in Christ cannot sin, he is speaking of two things. Those who are in sin will not have a lifestyle and practice of sins like those who are not in Christ. And from the perspective of our oneness with the Son, and therefore oneness with God. Our regeneration and salvation is not God's version of an IOU because we have a true and real sacrifice and the works of Christ that saved us truly. But we are also, what? Being saved because we are not yet full in glory. But since God is in glory, since God is eternal, and since the eternal sacrifice has been, what? Finished in Christ's words, we have been given justification and sanctification and the promise of glorification through God's will. It's already done. Meaning, God looks upon us as if we were already made fully perfect because of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the great spiritual adoption, he treats us as his own because we are his own. Here's the lengthy part. Turn over to Romans chapter 6. We'll try to go through this, but I want you to see it. I'm just going to let scripture speak for itself. But orient your mind on what the scholastics believed in Martin Luther's day. Orient your mind on what the Church of the Nazarene believes about entire sanctification or Christian perfectionism, but I want you to also orient your mind on 1 John and what he's trying to do. He is encouraging believers, not discouraging us. Because if we are in Christ, we can have confidence that we will be made perfect. Romans 6. I'll read a few of these, but I'll skip around a little bit. I'll tell you when to skip. Romans 6, beginning at verse 1. Paul says clearly, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The King James says, God forbid. Other translations say, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by the baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He suffered the curse on a tree to die for us. Skip down to verse 12, Romans 6, verse 12. It says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. If we were perfection, if we can reach perfection, why is he admonishing the church not to let sin reign, rule in our bodies? To make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin, that means your, your arms and feet and everything else, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under what? Grace. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. This harkens right back to John where he says, whoever sins has not seen him, neither known him. John is looking forward to Christ in eternity. What does Jesus say? In the last day, many will say, Lord, Lord, but he's going to say, I never knew you, you worker of what? Not perfectionism, not righteousness, but you worker who broke God's law, lawlessness. Let's keep going. Romans chapter 7. Romans 7 verse 18. This is where the perfectionist says that, that, that Paul said that he was an unregenerate man because he made this statement. Romans 7 verse 18. He says what? For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is what? In my flesh for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. This is Apostle Paul speaking. Listen to this next part. He says, for I, do not, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, 
but I still see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Wow, Paul, you're unregenerate. Paul understood the struggle between the spirit and the flesh. We are wrapped in our original federal head's flesh. We will not release that until we put on the new man in Christ. But we are putting on the new man in Christ, if this makes any sense, day by day through sanctification. Because in him, there is no sin. And if we are in him, we have no sin. Does that make sense? But that's not the end. Go over to Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 1. Paul, you just said that sin is reigning in your body. What are you talking about? Romans 8. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What's the law of sin and death? To sin, my, my son wants to play archery. And, you know, in archery... Anything outside of the bullseye is called sin. It means to miss the mark. Miss the center of perfectionism. To transgress God's law. Paul says to be in Christ is to be released from the law. Because there is no law against the spirit. What law is it against Christ? What law is it against love? Mercy? Goodness, temperance, self-control. There is no law against righteousness. There are only laws against sin. Look at verse 3 of Romans 8. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. It's a beautiful thing in the Old Testament. In, um, they would take a goat. And this is all spiritual because there was even spiritual aspects to what the Israelites were doing. But they would slaughter one lamb and that lamb would be taken and the, Levite, and, and the Levitical priesthood would take some of the, the, uh, the lamb or the bullock or the goat, and they would eat a portion of it, but they would burn the rest of it, the fat part, up to the Lord. But there was another ritual they did where they would take the sins of Israel, symbolically, and they would put it on the head of a goat and send it out into the wilderness. Because the wilderness represented death. That's the reason why... Israel rejoiced so much that he brought them to a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. The wilderness represented death. It was outside of the camp of God, outside of the will of God. 
which is why when you were unclean, you had to go outside the camp for seven days and be brought back in. We were outside of the camp of God our entire sinful lives. But not sending a symbolic goat, he sent a literal lamb to save his people. That lamb is Jesus Christ. This, in my biblical opinion, is the height of sanctification theology. The apostle recognizes that he was not perfect in the flesh and understood that in the spirit he has been made free from that sinful flesh. He didn't claim to be perfect. He didn't hold to sinless perfectionism or believed entire sanctification or that sanctification was somehow going to be finished. He recognized a war, a pushing and a pulling between the flesh and the spirit. You want to know how you can have confidence that you abide in Christ? When you have wars within yourself. A Christian hates their sin because the spirit reinforces the word of God. The words of Christ press upon the heart of every believer. I know they do to me. Well, Lord, I sinned. I mean, but nobody was around. Like, I'm driving. I'm, you know, I'm good. The word of God says, if you hide your sin, you will not prosper. Confess your sins to one another. That uncomfortable feeling as a Christian you get where your, where your sin is no longer that enticing, pleasurable blessing is good because you will not make sin a practice because it disgusts you like it disgusts God. He calls our righteousness filthy rags. A more graphic illustration would be a woman's menstruation cloth. See, a Christian, you will not continue a lifestyle of sin when you know that it is the mark of those who do not abide in Christ. Because the words of the Apostle John, the word of the Lord will ring out in your spirit, which is the spirit of Christ, as 1 John says, that those who abide in Christ commit no sin. And we have confidence in Christ who had no sin. And we are in him. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father. You have made us clean by the blood. You have convicted us. Of all sin. Both known sin. Presumptuous sins. And unknown sins. You continue to sanctify us and make you fit for, make us fit for your kingdom. You have given us blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace, lesson upon lesson to teach us and show us the way. We know that way, that way is through your son, Jesus Christ. We bless your name because all Wisdom and all knowledge, all sinlessness, all perfection, all glory is due to Christ. And we thank you that we are in him. Because we see that being in him, we who are called commit no sin. Because 
in him, we can believe the promise in eternity that we will be glorified. But to you, O Lord, we are already glorified. You see us, you admonish us, but you do not treat us as our sins truly deserved. But you have made our sins as far as from the east, from the west. You have blotted it out, and you say in your word, you have cast them into the sea of forgetfulness. We thank you, O God, for the remission of sin and for the life unto righteousness. Let us press forward in Christ and meet the mark that will finish in glory. In Jesus' name, amen.